Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Do you not remember having heard that when my lady Felice della Rovere was journeying to Savona and feared that some sails that were sighted were the vessels of Pope Alexander in pursuit of her? She made ready with fixed resolve to cast herself into the sea in case they should come up and there was no remedy by flight. And you must not believe that she acted on a whim. For you know, as well as any other, with what wisdom and intelligence this lady's singular beauty accompanied. Nor can I refrain from saying a word of Our Lady Duchess, who, having for fifteen years lived like a widow in the company with her husband, not only was steadfast in never revealing this to anyone in the world, but when urged by her own people to lay aside her widowhood, she chose rather to endure exile, poverty, and every other sort of hardship, than to accept that which seemed to all others great favour and blessing of fortune. The Book of the Courtier by Baldasser Castiglione, 1528. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.16, Felice della Rovere, aboard the matrimonial carousel. Last time, we concluded the story of Lucrezia Borgia, one of history's most chronically misunderstood characters. The daughter of Rodrigo Borgia, one of history's most infamous popes, Lucrezia achieved quite a bit in her relatively short life. Today, we look at the daughter of one of Pope Alexander's successors. Felice della Rovere. A common thread throughout all of the women that we've looked at so far in this series is the cost of ambition. None of them have been wallflowers, people willing to coast through life and let others decide their destiny. To be a woman remembered in this period, you needed to have something about you. Drive, passion, energy and will. You probably also needed to be from one of the prominent families or marry into one. So far, we've had a Sforza and a Borgia. Today, we have a Della Rovere. Ironically, for someone whose name literally means lucky, fortune played very little role in Felice's impact on history. Granted, she was born into privilege and rank, but few women achieved more in the Italian Renaissance than she. Other women from the period, like Lucrezia Borgia, Caterina Sforza and Isabella d'Este, may have more name recognition, but Felice was more powerful and influential than any of them. Unfortunately, this lack of fame does mean there hasn't been a great deal written about her. To peel back the curtain a little bit, 
When I went to research Lucrezia, I was greeted by an entire library shelf of books, a glut of material from which I fashioned those three episodes. For Felice, I am relying almost exclusively on one biography written nearly 20 years ago by Caroline Murphy. I do prefer generally to use more than one book as my main source, but beggars can't be choosers in history. Now, this is perhaps not opportunely timed, but I will be taking a couple of weeks off the podcast after this episode because I am moving house and all my stuff will be in boxes. I aim to be up and running again with a new episode on the 19th of June. You can keep up with the show by following it on Facebook and Twitter, and of course you can support it on Patreon. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Much like referees, Giuliano della Rovere has been the true villain of the piece for the last few episodes. He had been the enemy of Caterina Sforza's first husband, Girolamo, and, as Pope Julius II, spent his entire reign attempting to overthrow Lucrezia Borgia in Ferrara. Duplicitous, aggressive, and power-hungry, he's not an easy man to like. But there is more to him than I have so far let on. When he was born in 1445, the Della Rovere were not the mighty force they would be a few decades later. They were a noble family, but relatively impoverished. Everything changed, though, in 1471, when his uncle, Francesco Della Rovere, was elected Pope Sixtus IV. This elevated the Della Rovere family up to being one of the great families of Italy, as the rising tide lifted all members of the family. This included, of course, Girolamo Riario, the first husband of Castrina Sforza, and Sixtus's nephew, Giuliano, who was made a cardinal. Nepotism was the order of the day, and Giuliano was given many responsibilities. He became his uncle's troubleshooter, being sent to resolve disputes and manage his relationship with France. As part of this, he was made Archbishop of Avignon, and is responsible for much of the Renaissance-era renovations to the Papal Palace there. As we've seen, this was a period of exceptionally sexually active popes and cardinals. All of them had mistresses and or enjoyed the company of concubines, courtesans, or prostitutes. But by the stand of the time, Giuliano was not that motivated by sex. Indeed, the only reason why we know he broke his vow of celibacy was because it produced one child. His mistress's name was Lucrezia Normanii, a woman from an old Roman family that could trace its lineage back to the Norman sack of the city in the late 11th century. This noble status meant that she was well taken care of during her pregnancy and was given a decent marriage afterwards. This child out of wedlock did not make her a fallen woman. If anything... It was the making of her. Unsurprisingly, though, this illegitimate child born of an unmarried woman and a cardinal was not shouted about from the rooftops, so we don't know for sure when she was born. Our best guess, though, is around 1483. 
For context, that makes her 20 years younger than Katerina Sforza and three years younger than Lucrezia Borgia. She was initially brought up by her mother and stepfather Bernardo de Coupis, a head steward in the employ of her father's cousin, who rather unhelpfully was also called Giuliano de la Rovere. His wife had come with a healthy dowry, so they were able to build a comfortable palace for themselves to live in on the Piazza Navona. She had a rather charm childhood, reaping the benefits of both having loving and involved parents who took care of her, indeed her stepfather treated her as if she were his natural child, while also having a powerful father with influence and privilege who acknowledged her as his daughter. She had a younger half-sister called Francesca, but because she was the daughter of a cardinal, and Francesca was not, Felice was treated more like a son than a daughter. She was the link to power and the source of the family's influence. This meant she was well-educated and given every advantage. It was also impressed upon her from a very early age that she was special and that she would have her own way. This idyllic Roman childhood was interrupted by the election in 1492 of Rodrigo Borgia as Pope Alexander VI. As we know, the Borgias and Della Rovere hated each other, making Rome a perilous place for Felice to be. She could be taken hostage as a means to control Cardinal Della Rovere, or any number of nasty things could happen to her if she were to stay. It was far safer to remove her to the Della Rovere hometown of Savona in the northwestern part of the peninsula. This would have been a significant change for her. It's likely she had never left Rome before when she boarded the boat across the Tyrrhenian Sea. Savona was very different from Rome. For a start, it was far smaller, and was a provincial harbour town dominated by merchants and not clergy. As a big city teenage girl with a big-time father, Felice often rubbed people up the wrong way growing up in Savona. She was headstrong, confident and sophisticated. These people were just not on her level. We don't know much about what she looked like, as no contemporary descriptions of her survive, and only one confirmed depiction in art. This is in Raphael's famous fresco, The Mass at Bolsena, which is in the Raphael Rooms of the Vatican. This shows a dark-haired, tanned beauty staring reverently at her father. This was not the ideal standard of beauty for the age, which favoured fair-skinned blondes like Lucrezia Borgia, and perhaps this lack of comment on her looks speaks volumes. She certainly wasn't ugly, but I am sure someone would have mentioned it if she were beautiful. Around this time, when she was in her mid-teens, her father married her off for the first time. This man is shrouded in mystery. We know very little about him. We don't even know his name, which suggests he was a provincial figure of little consequence. Giuliana della Rovere was keen to establish a political power base in Savona, using its proximity to his French allies to boost his own political position against the Borgias. Therefore, the man would likely have been a regional power broker of some kind. Felice saw herself as a future pillar of Roman society, Being tied to some yokel from the sticks clearly appalled her. The marriage, though, did not last long, probably a few months or maybe a little longer before he died. Whoever he had been, he was not the man that Felice was looking for, and she would spend the next few years of her life rejecting various prospective suitors sent her way by her father. Widowhood, though, suited her just fine. 
She had some financial independence, and with her father frequently away on business, she had the kind of freedom seldom enjoyed by women of the age. These absences also meant that she had the run of the Della Rovere Palace in Savona, and she reveled in being able to run such an influential household. This was the centre of anti-Borgia resistance, with powerful visitors coming and going. It was an exciting place to live, even if it wasn't exactly where she wanted to be. Everything changed, though, in 1503, when, after the death of the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, and a very brief placeholder pope, Giuliano della Rovere was elected as Pope Julius II. He chose this name to emulate two of his heroes. The first was Pope Julius I, a 4th century pope that had stamped considerable authority on the nascent papacy, and, like della Rovere, was devoted to the cult of the Virgin Mary. The second, of course, was Julius Caesar, a warrior and statesman who needs no introduction. Like the progenitor of imperial Rome, Pope Julius II wants to be a great statesman, a conqueror, and a builder of a new world centred on Rome. Age 60, he knew that he would probably not have a long pontificate, and so set about his tasks with a sense of purpose and drive that few popes could match. As we have seen, he was also quick to anger and held grudges. Not a man to cross. You might have expected Felice to have been with her father at his moment of glory, but you'd be wrong. The relationship between Felice and Julius was quite different from Lucrezia Borgia and her father. Theirs was a close, intimate bond, and they didn't care who knew the special connection they shared. Julius was less keen to flaunt his illegitimate daughter, and was also far less openly nepotistic than his predecessors. Indeed, it was the same controversy surrounding the relationship between Lucrezia and her father that had encouraged Julius to keep Felicia at arm's length. If your pitch is that you are not a Borgia, then behaving like a Borgia would be somewhat undermining. So Felice stayed back in Savona, and would only appear in Rome when asked to attend court. Indeed, she would not visit the Eternal City for over three months after Julius's coronation, and that was to get married for the second time. The lucky man was to be Jacopo Appiano, the lord of Piombino, a port town in Tuscany. Appiano had been a fervent Borgia opponent, and had good links with Naples, Florence and Pisa. These were all attractive qualities for Julius. And Felice's case was evident. She was the daughter of an expansionist and aggressive pope. The opportunities were endless. But perhaps Julius wasn't as different from Rodrigo Borgia as he pretended to be, as he followed his playbook of making engagements for his daughter, only to break them when something more advantageous came along. Julius wanted to make nice with the French, so instructed his ambassador to pimp Felice out to the son of the Duke of Lorraine. But nothing much came of this, meaning that Felice sailed back to Savona, still a single woman. I doubt, though, Felice cried a river at not having the bonds of matrimony imposed upon her. She would be recalled to Rome in the summer, and would again be mounted on what Caroline Murphy calls the matrimonial carousel. Over the next few months, she prospected to the Colonnas, a powerful Roman family, and the Destes. In the latter plan, Ippolito Deste would give up his cardinal's hat and take the Duchy of Ferrara from his excommunicated brother Alfonso. 
This would have meant that Felice would depose Lucrezia Borgia, but of course that all came to nothing as well. Felice responded to this by avoiding court functions wherever possible and staying out the limelight in Rome. I promise not to spend all the next few episodes comparing Felice with Lucrezia, but I think it is instructive here. Lucrezia was famously loyal and indulgent towards her family, essentially never really rocking the boat, even when they were bumping off her husbands and lovers. She was the centre of courtly life and adored the spotlight. On the other hand, while not in a position to openly defy her father, Felice did everything she could to avoid doing his bidding and actively avoided family gatherings. Indeed, it could be argued that she disliked the extended Della Rovere family as much as Lucrezia would have. This is most evident in how she avoided marrying Prince Roberto of Salerno. He was the scion of one of the most powerful families in the Kingdom of Naples, and was related to the wife of one of Felice's uncles. He was, however, damaged goods. Years before, at the encouragement of the Della Rovere's, he had risen in rebellion against the King of Naples and lost, losing all of his wealth and estates. As a precondition of the marriage, Julius would have to get all of those lands back from the King of Naples. Felice was adamantly opposed to Prince Roberto. She didn't want a husband, but she particularly didn't want that husband. While we only have rumours and side mentions in letters about her rejection of other suitors, there is much evidence of her opposition to Roberto. The first of these comes in a letter from the Venetian ambassador, who noted the, quote, difficulties in bringing it about as the lady has contested it, which she has simply done by saying no. He later elaborated on this, writing, quote, Finding myself today with the Duke of Urbino, His Excellency appraised me of the fact that the marriage of the Madonna Felice with the Prince is in difficulty, and the cause is the lady who does not want it to take place, citing his poverty. The whole affair is in disarray, as the difficulties are great, because this woman has let her words be heard, and now they have reached the ears of the Prince. Even if the objections to the state of Naples were to cease, the lady would not wish to enter into his hands due to her fear of having an unhappy life with him. The Duke then accused the lady of instability, stating that many times the Pope had wished her to marry, but she had remained a widow and has always found reasons to be opposed to the men proposed, saying that she prefers to be left to depend upon her own resources. However, Now, the Pope is disposed to give her away to anyone, to send her away from Rome, so as not to have to behold this shameful creature in front of his own eyes. Ouch. However, I don't think we can just cast this as yet another example of Felice trying to avoid marriage at all costs. She was wise and astute enough to realise that Roberto was not at all a good choice. He had no money was obsessed with his mistresses, and his claim to fame depended upon him staying in Julius's good graces, which was not an easy thing to do. She didn't trust Roberto, and she especially didn't trust her father to have her best interests at heart. So she did everything she could to scupper this marriage. This defiance was highly unusual and attracted considerable criticism. She was labelled as unstable, a liability, Women did not go against the wills of their fathers, particularly when it came to their marriages. 
It speaks to her willfulness and strength of character that she was willing to put it all on the line to protect her own future. Of course, it helped that she had some independent wealth and position from her earlier marriage. But then so did plenty of other widows, and not many of them took a stand quite so vehemently as Felice. But while she was alienating people at quite a pace, she was not without friends. Perhaps the best of them was a Mantuan named Baldassar Castiglioni. He had been in the service of our old friend Francesco Gonzaga for several years before heading over to Urbino, one of the most cultured courts in Italy. He was a writer whose most famous work, The Book of the Courtier, published in 1528, is perhaps the courtly accompaniment to Machiavelli's The Prince. While the latter focused on statecraft and geopolitics, this was about etiquette and behaviour. In Castiglione's mind, the ideal female courtier was graceful and charming, modest and elegant, courageous, strong and wise. Felice was all of these things, and they quickly became firm friends. I read an extract earlier from the courtier about an episode from earlier in her life, where, fearing that she was about to fall into Borgia hands, she prepared to throw herself off her ship and drown. It is extraordinarily rare for female characters in Renaissance literature to behave like this. Certainly no one else in the courtier does. All the things that her father and his cronies found objectionable in Felice, Castiglione found fascinating, and their friendship would last for decades. Felice's friendship with Baldassar Castiglione opened up new social circles for her, most notably with another old friend of ours, Isabella d'Este. She was everything that Felice wanted. She had substantial influence, was highly cultured and educated, and had great social connections. But more than all of that, she was a true blue blood. Her parents, siblings, and husband all belonged to or were married into Italy's most august noble houses. For Felice, the illegitimate daughter of a nouveau riche family, Isabella was goals. Now, I'm aware that Isabella didn't come across tremendously well in the series on Lucrezia Borgia, as the two of them were not on friendly terms. But she was more amenable to Felice's friendly advances. Lucrezia and Felice were similar in many ways in terms of social background, but perhaps crucially, Felice was not married into Isabella's family. Indeed, Felice's biographer, Caroline Murphy, speculates that perhaps Isabella was turning full mean girl on Lucrezia Borgia by becoming friends with Felice. Spiting one pope's daughter by favouring another made it very clear where she stood. They also shared many common interests. Their mutual friend, Gian Cristofero, wrote a letter of introduction to Isabella, which emphasised Felice's cultured qualities. Quote, Madonna Felice, the daughter of the Pope, is the most noble lady, of a noble intelligence and goodness, and dedicated to letters, antiquities, and all virtuous works, and devoted to your ladyship, as she has repeated to me many times in speaking with her. And this wasn't mere flattery or exaggeration. Felice was fascinated with history, literature and scholarship of all kinds. 
Numerous contemporary writers and poets wrote about how impressed they were with her, with Giovanni Filateo Achillini calling her, quote, the lofty Felice, whose elegant manners deserve so much merit, praise and honour. She was able to pursue all of this, in part, because her father had cooled off a little in attempting to foist a husband on her. But she couldn't avoid the question of marriage forever. She was now 23, practically geriatric by the standards of the day for an unmarried woman, and she was beginning to understand the limitations of spinsterhood. Unmarried women were not admitted to many social circles, and while widowhood had enabled her to access some of these, this excuse would only last for so long. If she held out much longer, she might be forced to take holy orders, and this was not an attractive prospect. This meant that, when her father finally did produce a potential husband of some substance, she was at least willing to hear him out. This lucky man was Gian Giordano Orsini, a leading member of one of Rome's two most powerful families. This meant that he could offer her a prominent place in society, and most importantly, Roman society. No provincial port towns in the middle of nowhere, no impoverished landless dullards. He was the real deal. And if she were to marry anyone, he would be the one. The Orsini have popped up a few times in this season so far. Alongside their great rivals, the Colonna, they ran Rome, and their power struggle and the lawlessness it created was a primary reason for the papacy's near-century-long holiday in Avignon. At this point, the two were in a kind of uneasy, shaky peace, which had led to the Orsini family becoming a gateway for Florentine humanism within Rome turning the Orsini Palace at Monte Giordano into an artistic and scholarly salon without match in the Eternal City. The Borgias had aligned themselves with the Colonna, making the Orsini natural della Rovere allies. Gian Giordano Orsini was the head of a cadet branch of the family known as the Bracciano. He was 20 years older than Felice, and like her had been married before. His first wife, had been an illegitimate daughter of King Ferdinand of Aragon, he of Ferdinand and Isabella fame. They'd had three children together, but she had died in 1504. He was a codotiero, a mercenary captain who mostly fought in French service. Contemporary writer Francesco Sansovino called him, quote, a hero for his incomparable fortune and valour, which is about as good a review as you'll get. He was... How do I put this? A bit odd. He would mark his victories on the battlefield with wild and exuberant celebrations, include one setting a whole block of houses that he owned on fire. He wasn't, though, particularly bothered with marrying a bastard. He had before, of course, and saw great advantage in Felice as a wife. Marrying her brought him close to the Pope and all the riches and influence that entailed. I say riches, but Julius was still mad at his daughter, and so actually offered a paltry dowry of just 15,000 ducats. By comparison, he had offered Prince Roberto 40,000. The wedding itself was a relatively quiet affair. Her father banned any public celebration, and the ceremony took place not in the Vatican Palace, as had the wedding of her cousin Lucrezia, but in the residence of one of her cousins. 
Julius's name appeared nowhere on the register or the dowry settlement, and he didn't show up personally to the ceremony at any point. The wedding rings described as being particularly cheap, and Gian Giordano showed up three hours late after consulting his astrologer. It all seems somewhat awkward and tawdry, only worsened by what happened after they were declared man and wife. According to an onlooker, Gian Giordano gave her an oscule gallico, or French kiss. Quote, One between her lips and teeth, which caused the bride to redden, and the onlookers to both admire and laugh. The marriage was consummated that night, thankfully without onlookers in the room, though many had their ears pressed against the door, wondering what other exotic foreign moves the groom might be imparting to his bride. So, in summary, the wedding was a bit pants. But a wedding day is the start of a new chapter of a book, not its conclusion. And Felice was keen to start this new life as Norsini well. The day after the wedding, she and her new husband set off for Bracciano, a castle around 30 miles north of Rome. This was their formal seat of power, and would have made a big impression on her when it first hove into view. This wasn't some elegant palazzo. It was an imposing fortress with tall towers made of thick grey stone surrounded by a moat. These walls had kept Cesare Borgia at bay, and while it may not have had the opulence of the palaces in which Felice had lived in Rome, they would have made her feel secure. The harshness of the castle's exterior was offset by the beauty of its surroundings. It stood next to the glittering Lake Bracciano, with the snow-capped Sibyllini Mountains on the horizon, and between them were acres and acres of vineyards and fields of wheat and barley, an idyllic pastoral scene. She spent the next few weeks and months settling into her new life, getting to know her new servants, attendants and members of the Orsini family. Indeed, the one person she didn't spend much time with was her husband, who was off on his travels. They barely exchanged any correspondence at this time, which makes it very difficult to know what they thought of one another. They seemed to be as much strangers now as when they had been when they first met. Over time, though, they would grow to understand one another and form an understanding. There was no love in their relationship. It was purely transactional, but that didn't mean they were unhappy. They both knew what had brought them together and obtained what they wanted from it. He had given her position and the freedom to pursue her own interests. She gave him an in with the Pope. She didn't care about his mistresses so long as he didn't parade them around openly, which he was happy to accommodate. She also quickly did her duty and produced some children. In 1507, she had a daughter named Julia, after her father, and then, a year later, a son imaginatively named Julio, though he didn't live long. Whether it was his daughter finally being out of his hair, or the honour of having her children named after him, but the frustiness between father and daughter thawed after she got married. She began to receive invitations once more to state functions and was afforded both the status of the wife of a mighty Roman lord and favoured child of the Pope. She would frequently be the only woman present at meetings of the Pope and Cardinals, taking on the role that a consort might play in a contemporary royal court. She also began to find her income supplemented by regular gifts from her father, cash payments that were given directly to her 
rather than through her husband, as you might expect. She was always a woman who valued her own independence and voice, and so she used this money to buy a castle of her very own. She chose Palo Castle, a few miles northwest of Rome. She bought it from one of her husband's cousins, and crucially owned it and its hinterlands outright. This was her own property, purchased while married from her own money, a highly unusual arrangement for the time. Palo wasn't especially modern, large, or even impressive castle. It was 150 years old when she acquired it, though there had been some form of settlement on the land since pre-Republican ancient Rome times. As someone fascinated by antiquities, this linked the glorious heritage of Italy was an enticing prospect. But nostalgia wasn't her primary motive. She wanted it to make lots and lots of money. Her husband was a mercenary soldier. He could die at any point. And her father was an old man who equally could die at any moment. And if that happened, she would again be dependent on others, especially if she didn't have a living son. An independent income that was hers, and hers alone, could keep her secure and comfortable for the rest of her life. The lands around Palo were fertile and rich, helping to keep the people of Rome fed with grain. She also used her influence in the Vatican to secure a lucrative contract to supply her father and his cardinals with their literal daily bread. Therefore, her impact was being felt not only in her position at court, but also the dinner table. It also gave her access to some of the key officials of the Vatican administration, who helped broker her deals and sell her produce to the Roman people. They say the key to a person's heart is their stomach, and Felice found that her agriculture business was unlocking all sorts of doors. She was an important part in the signing of the Pax Romana, or Roman Peace, in 1511, which saw the various warring families of Rome, including the Colonna and Orsini, agree to set aside the differences and work together to further the glory of the Vatican. Her connections within the Orsini family were vital in making this happen, as were her attempts to prevent them from allying with Venice against the Holy League in the War of the League of Cambrai. Her husband, Gian Giordano, was never a part of this. His loyalty was with France, which was on the side of the Holy League, but he was equally uncomfortable at the prospect of fighting against his own relatives. Felice understood the power of money more than most, and so met with the Venetian bankers tasked with paying the Orsini, persuading them to withhold the money. She then met with the treacherous Orsini, and through some means, we're not entirely sure what, but it probably involves some sort of large bribe, managed to bring them around. She was able to do this, as she was the perfect intermediary through which the Pope could act. She could operate with plausible deniability and without the need for her father to get his hands dirty. Ambassadorial reports back to their home courts in Rome were in no doubt that it was her that brokered the deal. This from Mantua, quote, Those Orsini have reached an agreement with our Lord and came yesterday to the feet of his holiness through the mediation of Madonna Felice. They have undertaken not to fight without a papal mandate. By 1510, however, the diplomatic situation had changed. The threat from Venice had diminished, and so Pope Julius had set his eyes on driving the French out of northern Italy. This put Gian Giordano in a bit of a bind. 
He had spent years in the service of France, and had quite a deal of property and money tied up there. War, between his in-laws and his employers, put him between a rock and a hard place. After trying and failing to bring the two sides together, he called on his wife to bring her own influence and diplomatic skills to bear. He introduced her to the French Queen, Anne of Brittany. Her husband, Louis XII, was, let's say, a bit thick, and Anne was seen very much as the brains of the French monarchy. With Anne's husband and Felice's father at loggerheads, these two women provided calmer heads and back channels, quiet words and wise counsel. They compared notes and worked together to try and end the conflict. However influential and wise they may have been, it was always going to be an uphill task for two women to stop the geopolitical waves from crashing down. Their efforts to bring about peace failed, but it didn't go unnoticed and reflected the esteem in which they were both held in their respective courts. These diplomatic efforts established Felice not as a mere power broker within Rome and the Papal States, but on the European stage. She was treated as an equal by no less than the Queen of France. Not bad for the illegitimate daughter of an Italian priest. There were very much, though, limits to her power. In 1511, she ran up against a brick wall while trying to do a solid for her friend Isabella d'Este. As you'll remember from the series on Lucrezia, Julius had excommunicated her father and Isabella's brother, Duke Alfonso of Ferrara. While Isabella's husband, Francesco Gonzaga, commanded the papal army, his poor performance and his wife's unfortunate relations were impacting Isabella's social standing. She appealed to her friend Felice to help, who tried to persuade her father to agree to a marriage between one of Alfonso's sons and Felice's daughter, Julia. This betrothal between two young children would hopefully bring the Deste and Della Rovere closer together and end the conflict. Julius, however, reacted furiously to his daughter's overtures, dismissing her and telling her to, quote, attend to her sewing. Not deterred by this rude slight, Felice continued to work with Isabella, though they did so in secret. They had code names and everything. Felice was Sappho, an ancient Greek lyric poet from Lesbos, whom Raphael had famously painted in a fresco in the Vatican Palace. They used the Mantuan ambassador to pass notes between them. In one of them, the ambassador wrote to Isabella that Agent Sappho will, quote, most willingly exhaust herself in helping the Deste family. Isabella was incredibly grateful for Felice's efforts, abandoning her usual terse and formal style to write an effusive letter of thanks to her friend. Quote, I understand from various sources how lovingly and favourably you have acted in the matters of my illustrious brothers, and I know your goodness is not only out of respect for them, but also love of me. I want you to know how much I esteem our efforts and authority, which I know His Holiness prizes greatly. But all of this work would be for nothing, as Pope Julius's health was deteriorating. In January 1513, he became entirely bedridden, and the following month, he died. This was an incredibly dangerous moment for Felice. But, to quote the fourth doctor, the moment had been prepared for. Her father was dead, and there was no certainty that his successor would be favourable to her. 
but thanks to her hard work and perseverance, she knew that she would be able to survive. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.